You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Lord God, please be with us today and help us by your spirit to understand your word. Amen. Uh, Well, to begin this evening, I'd like to start with uh, picturing a scene that might help you to think about uh, tonight's passage. I don't have a whiteboard or drawing skills to help you, um, so you're going to have to use the whiteboard markers of your mind to picture a scene together. So I want you to picture yourself sitting in a courtroom. Uh, Now, in this courtroom, uh, you're sitting on the wooden benches in the viewing gallery, and you're looking on as a trial takes place. And on trial are 22 men sitting in two rows below in the dock. It's a group proceeding. And this group of men is facing directly up toward the judge high up on the bench. This is a snapshot of the end, the end of this particular trial. And the courtroom is silent before the judge. The judge then delivers the sentencing. And the sentencing is that 12 of these 22 men that are sitting before you are sentenced to death by hanging. And then seven of them are given prison terms, ranging from 10 uh, years to life in prison. So for over half of these men um, sitting before you, soon they'll be dead. Now, still thinking of the image here, uh, your view from the viewing gallery uh, as you're watching this proceeding take place um, allows you to see the faces of these men that have just been convicted. And there's disbelief and horror on their faces at their impending judgment. For most of these men, their lives as they once knew it is now over. As you're picturing the scene, I wonder how does it make you feel? Does it stir up any particular emotions in you? What is your response to this kind of judgment? Well, this of course is a true story. Uh, that you've just imagined in your heads. It's the scene from the year 1946, after the first of the Nuremberg trials, the famous war crime trials, which uh, many of the political and military leaders of the Third Reich were charged after World War II. I wonder if this has changed your initial feelings towards these men that you're picturing. Uh, These 22 men were on trial for their part in the genocide of 6 million European Jewish people as well as some other minority groups as well. So from 1941 to 1945, uh, Nazi Germany carried out Hitler's so-called final solution to the Jewish question. Jewish people were shot, they were gassed, they were starved, they were thrown in mass graves. Many of you have probably seen some of the horrific imagery from the Holocaust. But this occasion at Nuremberg in 1946 was also cause for rejoicing Rejoicing for the Jewish people who had survived the Holocaust, the very people against whom the atrocities of the genocide in Germany and Poland were committed against. They would have rejoiced at judgment that was handed down. So at Nuremberg, judgment was brought down and executed for the right reasons. The charges were brought forth, the sentences were read before the court, and justice was carried out. Well, I don't know how this makes you feel. Um, Perhaps this story makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, and that's okay. Um, Or even you're just not sure what to think. Um, But maybe for some of you, uh, there's also a sense of, of satisfaction, perhaps. A sense of closure. 
because the evil deeds of these evil men have finally been dealt with. So these are the kinds of emotions, uh, the kinds of responses that we're going to be thinking about today as we work our way through Revelation 15 and 16, the passage that Joel just read out for us. And so the question I want you to be thinking about is how do you respond to God's judgment? So here in uh, Darabin Presbyterian Church, we've been in the book of Revelation for a while now, and we've already seen something of how God's judgment is justified and how his wrath against the earth is the appropriate response for God to take. Uh, But today we're asking a slightly different question. um, That is, what is your response to this judgment and how does it make you feel? So like the World War II example that we've just considered, what kinds of thoughts are running through your head as you hear of the judgment that's read out in Revelation 15 and 16? So just quickly, uh, just a reminder of where we are in the book of Revelation as a whole. Uh, So far back in chapter 4, John was called up to the throne room of God Almighty. Uh, For the most part, he is seeing visions of God's uh, judgment on the world. First seven seals, then there were seven trumpets. Uh, Then we've had a bit of an interlude describing the struggle between Satan and God's people. Uh, And in chapter 13, uh, we heard about two beasts who were setting up idolatry against God and last week we heard uh, two weeks ago we heard about the 144,000 being preserved by the the lamb so that's where we are and all this has been building up to this final image of judgment at the end and that's what we're going to find here in Revelation 15 and 16 so with that in mind please look down with me in your Bibles or to the extra slip that you got with your connect card And we're going to start um, from Revelation chapter 15, verse 1. So it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. So again, here we have another seven in the book of Revelation. We had seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and now these seven last judgments. So with these judgments, the wrath of God is completed. It will be finished. No more. No more judgment. We've read through the seal judgments of chapter 6 and 8. and We've read about the trumpet judgments of chapters 8 and 11, where uh, whereas the seals revealed judgments and whereas the trumpet judgments are warned of further judgments to come, uh, these coming judgments that we're about to read of are the final ones. And talking about how this makes you feel, I wonder if, as a reader of the book of Revelation, uh, you get to this verse and feel some sort of relief that these horrible judgments are actually coming to a close. Well, unfortunately, these judgments are far worse than any of the others. They're the final climactic acts of the wrath of God encompassing the entire earth. So let's keep reading. In verse 2 there, And I saw what looked to be like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image, and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God. So if you remember back to Revelation chapter 4, the sea of glass mentioned here is associated with the throne of God. It's the same image that the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament have when he had a vision of uh, the throne of God. It's a, it's a magnificent picture. 
But look now there at the passage, who seems to be in the presence of the throne of God? It's those who had been victorious over the beast. So these are the overcomers that we've already read about. These are the ones who cry out, O Lord, how long, in chapter 6. These are the ones who don't fall in line and worship the beast in its image in chapter 13. These are the ones who are written in the book of life of uh, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So notice that if these overcomers described here are now in the throne room of God, that means, of course, that they're not on the earth. They've been cut off from the earth. They've been slain on the earth by the beast and his worshippers, and now they're coming out from the earth um, into heaven to God. So like the multitude that John saw previously from every tribe and tongue and nation that was coming out from the earth to God, uh, so too these people have come out from the earth. They've been slain on the earth because they didn't worship the beast or its image. They didn't give in, and we'll see this a bit more clearly in chapter 16 coming up shortly. Now just pause for a moment. And let's think about the people here that have been killed. Even just thinking about it in terms of the imagery that um, we've got in this uh, picture from John's vision, because we haven't really brought this home yet to figure out what exactly this means, Uh, but just from what you've read here from John's vision um, of these people who have been slaughtered because they were not willing to worship an idol and a false god, the beast in its image, um, I don't know how you feel when you read that, but I feel a strong sense of injustice. I read that and I feel that the people who have shed the blood of these innocent people deserve to be punished. And I'm wondering, what do you think? What do you think when you read of the pictures of these slain victims of the oppressive worldly system that demands its worship? Do you feel that they deserve to be punished? It's okay, by the way, if you're not sure what you're supposed to be feeling thus far, uh, because this is pretty heavy stuff. So now these slain victors that are standing at the throne are mentioned to have harps in their hand. So apparently they've got some sort of musical proficiency. Um, And that fits well with what we're about to read next, because in the next verse we find that they're going to be singing, so they're a bit of a multi-talented bunch. Um, And they're singing uh, the song of Moses and the Lamb. So for those of you who have been in here in Darabin Presbyterian Church for every single sermon of Revelation and have been keeping tally of all the Old Testament references that we've been seeing, uh, get ready, because here's some more. This is going to be the first of a fair few allusions back to the book of Exodus. Exodus being the second book of the Bible, recalling the Hebrew, the Hebrew slaves being miraculously delivered from Egypt. So Exodus is already f- featured prominently in Revelation so far. And here we've got a bunch of references starting with the song of Moses there in verse 3 and 4. So these singing and harp playing saints sing a song, uh, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And this, the lyrics to this song seem to be some sort of uh, condensed mashup, if you will, of uh, Exodus chapter 15 and uh, Revelation chapter 5. All the same themes are there God, of God's holiness, God's justice, um, and the fear of God. And just like the song of Moses celebrated the liberation of God's people from slavery 
in Egypt, and so, so too this song that they're singing uh, celebrates the liberation of these slaves um, from slavery to the beast. And did you, did you pick up in Joel's reading there before about how they're reacting, what their response is to God's judgment? Look there in verse 3. It's, they say, Just and true are your ways. And in the next verse, they're labeling God's acts of judgment as being righteous. They're just and true. So then it's already pretty clear what these people around God's throne think about the wrath of God um, and it's pouring out on the earth. So notice, notice their response. And we're going to come back to that at the end. John continues there in his vision from verse 5. He says, After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. So our vision here has been moved from the throne of God and his heavenly choir of these saints um, to the tabernacle of the covenant, uh, uh, the tabernacle and the covenant law. So this is another reference back to the book of Ezekiel, back to the place where, where God would meet with his people. Um, it was the place that contained God's established covenant law with his people of Israel. And out of the tabernacle are coming these seven angels with seven plagues who were mentioned at the start of the chapter. And we find these angels are on a bit of a mission from God. So continuing reading there in verse 7, he says, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke of the glory of God from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. It's a pretty sort of ominous sounding picture, right? So I wonder if you picked up any more hints there from the Exodus story back in verse 8. It was the, the smoke of the glory of God. Uh, this is the story of how God symbolized his dwelling with his people in the book of Exodus. Um, and in that event, in the wilderness wanderings, the, the Israelites, um, no one could enter the sanctuary. Nobody could enter in. Not even Moses could enter into God's sanctuary. So it, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 40, it's actually a disaster. The Israelites have made all these preparations for the tabernacle so that God could dwell with his people, but no one can enter into God's presence. And this should be alarming for you too, because if none of us can be in God's presence, then what hope is there for us? No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So it's the same story that we've got here. Just like in the Old Testament, God had to pronounce his judgment through the sacrificial system before people could enter into his presence. And so here too, God is pronouncing the enactment of his judgment before people can enter into his presence. So these final climactic judgments at the end of the age must happen before anyone can enter into God's holy sanctuary. So let's dive in then and see God's plan for the end of the age uh, laid out there in chapter 16. We'll keep on moving. Uh, chapter 16 there says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 
So these first climactic judgments on the earth, these are the first climactic judgments on the earth, and I want you to look again there in verse 2 at who this plague of sores is directed against. They're targeting the people who worshipped the beasts. They're the murderers who had slain the saints that we saw back in chapter 15, verse 2. And we saw back there that the end result of those saints who refused to worship the beast, although they had perished in their earthly life, their eternal life is now glorious. Whereas the people who did worship the beast are about to experience even worse hardships in the next few verses. So you see the contrast between these two groups of people. Uh, Those who had conquered the beast by not worshipping it, and those who are now suffering because they'd given in to the beast and worshipped it. And this reminds me a bit of Aaron's uh, rope illustration for those of you who were with us two weeks ago here. Um, Aaron, during his sermon, reeled out a bit, bit of rope. Um, th- at the start of the rope, there was this tiny bit of red rope at the start and then masses of white rope at the end of it. And it's like comparing this current life, which is so short in comparison to all of eternity, And these beast worshippers here that are mentioned in chapter 16 were so focused on that tiny little bit of red rope. They were all about this life and getting the most out of it, which in their case meant going along with the crowd and worshipping the beast. When in fact, those who have conquered the beast were focused on the eternity of white rope uh, that came after. They're the ones that they knew giving up even their lives in this small section of existence was worth eternity in the presence of God. So that was a point of last sermon, not this sermon, but still something good to think about. So we're still thinking about these seven final judgments. Now I might just pause again here, just uh, pause again, uh, because some of you might be a bit frustrated uh, because I haven't... actually explained what any of these signs actually mean. Um, It can be a bit of a frightful thing to try and discern exactly what's going on in the book of Revelation, Uh, but I think there are some good reasons for the details that are given. So for example, in uh, the previous chapter, in 15 verse 1, it says, John saw another sign in heaven. Uh, So he's sort of using imagery uh, to describe what is indescribable. Uh, But then we come to the verses that we've just read about the plagues being poured out on the earth. And when it says that harmful and painful sores came on the people uh, who bore the mark of the beast, uh, I think it means exactly that. That this is a real plague that will come upon people at the end of time in the final judgment. So don't get me wrong, I I do think that there is a lot of imagery in the book of Revelation and I want to give merit to that, Uh, but I want to treat the symbolic language as symbolic and I want to take the plain reading of the text at face value. Uh, So that means with this judgment in chapter 16, I really do believe uh, that this will happen at the end of the world as they're laid out here in chapter 16 and you should talk to Aaron or myself if um, you're wondering about that after, after the service. But I think it's relevant here for our purposes Uh, Because remember, we're asking the question, what is your response to God's judgment? So I guess the question here is, uh, what is your reaction to the idea uh, that these judgments will actually take place sometime in the future? And so I said uh, that there was much worse things in store. Uh, There 
and they're there in verses 3 and 4 of the chapter of chapter 16 and it is that the rivers and the sea are all turned into blood which you know just doesn't sound good and I mean, I don't know how this makes you feel about this particular judgment, but it just seems really harsh. Like, how are these people going to survive with no drink, water drinking source? So again, if you've been here at uh, DPC on the Sermons of Revelation, you might recall back to chapter 8 um, in the seven tr- trumpet judgments, something similar happened there, um, that one-third of the sea was turned into blood. So here we have the same judgment, but on a much larger scale. This is the whole of the sea and all the rivers. So one of the things that this tells you is that this really is the end. This really is describing the finishing of God's judgments because, well, people don't survive long with a water source that's 100% blood. And again, the Exodus reference here is overtly clear and you don't even have to have read the book of Exodus um, to get this reference because many of you have seen uh, the movie The Prince of Egypt, that late 90s animation of the Exodus story where this water turning into blood happens or maybe even recently the failed 2014 Exodus movie with Christian Bale, 28% on Rotten Tomatoes. No good, give me Prince of Egypt any day. Um, just like there, just like there, Moses turned the water of the Nile River into blood as part of a bigger battle between God and Pharaoh. So too, in this final judgment that we're seeing here, it's not just the Nile River that's turned into blood, but it's all of the seas and all of the rivers. And it's in this context of approaching the end uh, that we see yet another positive reaction to God's judgments. It's there in verse 5. John heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One, for they have shed the blood of your people and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And then again, we hear an echo of the song back in chapter 15, Just and true are your judgments. These verses are a bit of a moment to sort of catch your breath um, before we um, keep moving on to the fourth bowl here. And notice that these reactions are the polar opposite to the voices of the people that we hear after the fourth bowl, which allows the sun to scorch people with fire. Notice there that the people affected by this plague, they curse God and they refuse to repent and give God glory. So their reaction, they refuse to give God glory. They curse God for these judgments. And this reaction is only exacerbated further with the fifth bowl that is poured out on the beast and its kingdom, which is plunged into darkness, see there. In other words, the evil worldly system that they had put all their hope into was brought to nothing. And now they're even more bitter, as it says there in verse 11, they do not repent of their deeds. Keeping on moving forward, uh, the the next section of verse is all about Armageddon. Uh, the final battle, the end of the world, and unlike the movie Armageddon with Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler, this time there's no Bruce Willis to save the day. There's something, some really interesting stuff in there about the Euphrates River and from kings from the east and also some frogs. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what's going on in these verses, but at least we can say that this really is the final battle, the end. 
So we see there in verses 14 that the kings of the whole world are gathering together to battle against God. So picture that. It's, it's not no longer America versus Russia. It's no longer one country against another, but it's all the countries, all the kings of the earth allied together against God on the great day of God Almighty. So the final battle, Armageddon. And it's probably with another sigh of relief that we hear a voice from heaven after the seventh bowl is poured out that cries out, it is done, it is finally finished. And again, at the end of the passage there, we see that after all the final plagues are finished, the result of the people on the earth is still the same. That is, they curse God on the account of the plague of the hail because the plague was so terrible. That's their reaction to all this judgment. They curse God and die. Now, some of you may well be asking, why? Why do all these things have to happen? Uh, And that's a really good question. Uh, It's a question I had to ask myself when I was reading through this passage. Uh, We might tend to naturally tend to think, why can't God just get over it? Uh, Why does he have to punish people? Um, Can't he just be an all-loving God and just forget about it and love people no matter what? If you cast your mind back to the story we looked at at the start about the trials at Nuremberg, um, could you ask the same question to the Holocaust survivors? Could you say to the Jewish people, yeah, the Holocaust was bad, but can't you just get over it? Like, six million people of your friends and family, but come on, no one needs to pay the penalty. Let's just continue on like it never happened. If you don't think you could bring yourself to say that, then what about here in this passage? Do you question the necessity of God to bring judgment on these murderers here in the passage of Revelation? Well, if I may, I think that it makes sense about uh, thinking about God's character. Uh, This passage is consistent with God's unchanging character. So we learn through all the Bible uh, from God's character that he is slow to anger. We sung about it just before in one of the songs. Uh, You can read about this in Exodus chapter 34 and amongst other places. And so we love that about God, that he is slow to anger. But that doesn't mean he doesn't show any anger. He clearly does sometimes get angry. But he's also extremely patient. It's a graciously balanced character. So as the pastor Tim Keller says, it's not no anger, it's not blow anger, Uh, but it is slow anger that defines God's reaction to sin. So to answer the question then, these judgments have to happen because God has stored up his anger for so long. It has come to the point here where God will no longer hold back his wrath. And before before his anger is justly quenched, it would be a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So notice one last thing uh, before we move on about God's anger, that if he really is slow to anger, like we read in the Bible, and he has been patiently holding back his wrath from the earth for so many years, then we can read this chapter and we can know that we haven't just caught God on a bad day. He hasn't just flipped and gone on some massive rampage. No, what we read in Revelation 16 is the slowly calculated measuring of God's wrath proportional to the cumulative offences committed by humans throughout all time. 
These are the just and true ways of God that the saints prayed about back in verse 3. Now, remember, uh, you're trying to think about what is your response to God's judgment. Um, How do you feel about what we've just read through in Revelation chapter 15 and 16? Well, I wonder which which camp you fall in. We've seen in these two chapters that there's been two responses to God's judgment. Uh, We saw in chapter 15, remember the saints in heaven sang the song of the Lamb and the song of Moses, that God's judgments are just and true and that his deeds are marvelous. And then another positive response in chapter 16 from the angel who says that God is just in carrying out these judgments because he's giving people what they deserve. But on the other hand, we've seen those who reject God and his judgments. These are the ones that curse God and refuse to repent and give him glory. They gnaw at their tongues in agony. They're afflicted with the terrible plagues. They curse God. These are the two responses to God's judgment that we see in this passage. And I'm asking you, what's your response? And now, if you're feeling like you've been a bit set up, uh, then you're right, uh, because you have been. Uh, So remember at the start, I got you to think about the Nuremberg trials, uh, to think about how you felt about those 22 men that have been accused. Perhaps when you found out that they were Nazi war criminals, uh, you were a bit more okay with the judgments um, that were passed down. Um, And of course, that was all a bit of a ploy by me to get you thinking about the need for judgment and why in this passage of Revelation we should be reacting like the people who are welcoming God's judgment. That That was the setup, okay? And I'm sure a fair few of you saw it coming miles ahead. But here's the thing. I'm wondering... If you've gotten to this point, looking through these chapters and these responses to God's judgment, and if you're like me, you might feel like a bit of a hypocrite. You may or may not have this feeling that you're supposed to respond positively to God's judgment, particularly if you're here and you're a Christian. But at the same time, you know you're no heavenly saint. I know for myself, after just reading these two chapters of the Bible, how much I actually dread the idea of God's judgment. I look at myself and I'm scared because I'm not even aware of the fraction of the ways that I've been unfaithful to God in my life. If there really is a God and he really will judge like um, we've seen in these chapters, then I really don't have a leg to stand on. That's honestly how I feel after reading just these two chapters by themselves. And perhaps, perhaps you're the same. You know that in your heart you've acted selfishly and in just some outright unlawful ways in your life. And so reading about God's judgment makes you feel uncomfortable, but actually it also just terrifies you, perhaps. So it's not as simple as I made it out to be at the start. It's not as simple as uh, just with the Nazi war criminals on trial, because it's not like we can just gather up all the evil people in the world and hand them over to judgment, like what happened at Nuremberg in 1946. So I think this will help. There's a quote here from uh, the famous Russian historian Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, here's, Here's the quote. He says that, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line that divides good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart?
So before we ask the question, why does God have to bring all these judgments? Is it really necessary? Uh, Maybe you looked at this passage and you weren't convinced. And if you're not convinced of the need of God's judgment, you need to look at the cross. You've got to see Jesus Christ nailed to a plank of wood, pouring out his blood from his feet, from his hands, from his side, suffocating to death. Instead of blood being poured out on the rivers and on the seas, Christ's own blood was being poured out on the earth as he died. You've got to see that that's what it took for God's judgment to be satisfied. It took for the perfect Son of God to bear the judgment of my sin, of your sin, upon himself, so that we might boldly speak these words from the passage today, Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. There's no way we can approach a holy God by ourselves. We saw that before, that no one could enter into God's presence until his judgment was poured out. And where do we see God's judgment poured out most fully? It's not at Armageddon. It's not at the end of the world. It's at the cross. The cross of Christ where he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross shows you that God's judgment is so fatally necessary that he dealt with it himself. He took the punishment into himself that was reserved for us, including this terrible punishment that we've read about here in Revelation 15 and 16. That's why the saints around the throne are singing the song of the Lamb. That's why we, uh, that's why we sing here at church. And if you're not sure of where you stand with God right now, can I urge you, not to be like the people we've read about in this passage who curse God and refuse to turn to him. Don't be on that side of this passage receiving God's judgment. Like we heard from the passage when the final bowl of judgment was poured out on the earth, the angel said, it is finished. It is done. So to Jesus' last words as he died on the cross for you and me was, It is finished. And it truly is finished. We can turn to God and accept the salvation that he freely offers to all because that Jesus bore God's punishment in our place. If you're a Christian and if you're in Christ, your response to God's judgment is hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because his judgment is right and it is necessary, it is just but we do not bear it ourselves because Jesus has already borne it for us on the cross. And that's something truly that we can rejoice in. Would you pray with me to finish? Our Heavenly Father, um, we thank you um, for Jesus and for the way he has borne all the judgment, including the judgment that we've read about here tonight. Thank you that if we are in him, And if we trust in him for our salvation, um, that we can be like the saints that say, just and true are your ways. Help us, we pray, uh, to confess these truths to you. Amen.